0: Hello and welcome back, or welcome if this is your first time, to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Today's Thursday, August 25th, 2022. I guess, are we on a Labor Day show? Are we recording next week? We, I guess we will, maybe. I'm not sure how it's going to go. I think
1: we have it off. I'll have to double check. We may not no. have a show.
0: may not have a show. What we will have, though... For, is it the second? Is Tuesday the second? I can't remember.
1: Oh. Right. Uh, what, what day is It'll be the 30th. What? I think it's 30th or 31st.
0: Right. I'm just saying our fall <laughs> preview draft is coming.
1: <laughs> How does time work?
0: The first Tuesday in September. So that'll be Tuesday the 6th. If you're a Patreon member. Now oh, no. For Jeff, what?
1: the The fall draft is going live on the 30th.
0: That's what I meant to say. The fall draft <laughs> will go live on the 30th. You'll have a full week before the <laughs> sixth, which is when the first wave of the fall releases come out. Yeah, that's um, why we planned it that way. That's why we planned it that way. So you will be ready. Nothing will cu- catch you unawares, except all the books we don't talk about. And since there's 11D Jillian, that means that you will miss a, a whole bunch. But so look for that now. Last week, Rebecca and I, um, well, Rebecca humored me with <laughs> my um, uh, galaxy brain about a solving book rating systems. And a lot of people wrote in to say StoryGraph does that already. I accounted for that show, and that's not what I'm talking about, And but sort of. So you can hear all that if you haven't listened or you want to sign up there. That was fun to do uh, as well. Anything you want to say about the fall preview draft? We haven't talked. I, the only thing I told Rebecca, I, I gave her, I, gave her a, I threw her a bone and said, okay – just so you know, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to take the book that's a history of Orchid and 12 Orchids. Just, I knew she was worried. She was wondering if she was going to pick that number one if she got the first pick. So said, you don't have to worry about it. It's not on my board. You don't have to play defense. Yeah.
1: It's a, it's going to be a little bit different of a setup from our last couple of drafts because we gave ourselves some structure rather yeah. than just the wide open ocean. We set eight categories that we each need to pick a title in, and then we get we each get two freebies and we didn't take anything off the board at the start no. which we we did last fall when and we it was Colson Whitehead so but there were there were a handful last fall that in retrospect I think we could have taken <sighs> off the board to start i'm yeah. i think as i've near and we're recording that show right after this so like as i've looked and narrowed down where i would like to go in my first pick for each round i think that I've got a pretty good idea of the places that we're going to be like duking it out or where it'll just be whoever gets lucky and goes first that round. I've got
0: three that I really (laughs) want.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple I'm really excited about. It feels like not not as big of a fall as we had last year, but it's hard to ever, I think, account for what last fall was in the world of books, where there were a ton of titles that have been delayed from other years due to the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, Just, I mean, when else are you going to get we had Franzen, we had Lauren Graff, we had Louise Erdrich, we had Colson Whitehead. There were a couple more, just like big heavy hitters yeah, in, were some in close proximity, ones. but lots of really interesting stuff. I'm looking. And in the spring, we
0: it. got a, Mandel, a Hanya Yanagahara and Egan. Mm-hmm. Right, those are right. in terms mm-hmm. of big lit fit crossover award winners that could sell from names like you don't get much bigger than those three, uh, and we don't have that. We, I don't have three like that. I don't, I don't have tipping my hand again, I don't have three commercial slash lit fit crossovers. I've got a one no. or two mm-hmm. but my two and three choices are not that. Um, same. So yeah, those categories are gonna be. Are f- I know we're going to be fighting over around. this. I know we're talking <laughs> about the same three books.
1: Yep, God I do. It. <laughs> it's going to be so, fun.
0: <laughs> I was, I was going to think, do we is there any meat left on the bone, either as a segment for the regular show or for the Patreon where we just do our list of the books we're personally most excited about? I feel oh, like I that's the so. one thing to preview draft and especially for doing these categories because one of the categories is like TikTok lottery ticket. <laughs> kind yeah. of like Those aren't books that I'm excited about. I'm interested and in maybe I'll read some of those but like, shoot us an email, podcast at bookwright.com. Whether or not you're a Patreon member, would you be interested in 45 minutes or something of us doing? Here are the 10 books Rebecca's most excited about and here are the 10 books I'm most personally excited about um, outside of this weird exercise that we keep <laughs> Making more and more intricate for people that don't exist,
1: <laughs> we just got to keep it interesting,
0: yeah, we're trying to do it, and th- but what you do that is make it smaller and smaller you cut you cut the diamonds into smaller and smaller fragments is how you make it yeah, better. I think
1: you know Next week our bonus recording Is a look back at our summer draft And when we looked back at our spring draft We did some like What of your spring draft did you end up reading What else did you read from the spring That you wish you had drafted I think there is a way to sort of marry these Or or build off those conversations Into here's what I've drafted But also here's what I'm personally Going to be reading
0: Yeah Uh, So that's coming up Always a fun time And uh, let's do a sponsor break And do some listener feedback And stories of the week
2: (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my Today's episode is brought to you by SourceBooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote.
0: Uh, Listener feedback I'm not sure where to do feedback for the Patreon stuff. Do we do it in the Patreon? But I, I should say a lot of people are like, Storygraph sort of does this, here's the thing I said what I said I even mentioned Storygraph in the things and I said how it's different, so anyway, you can follow up there Storygraph is cool though. For those of you who don't know it, it is also a good read sort of an idea where you're getting recommendations and you can leave reviews and get feedback but they have a I think there's 12 or 15, they call them moods, where you can say, I want something that's hopeful or exciting or fanciful or I don't remember all the top intellectual. Um, And then there's a couple other drop-down menus where you're trying to get more granular, where it's not just three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half stars plus everyone else's review plus the publisher's synopsis in Goodreads. I think I would say at this point, pretty weak tagging system. That's Mm -hmm. my opinion at this point. Go check out Storygraph. It's, It's an independent company. Um I think I think start by one person, one woman if I if I know this right. I probably don't, but you can find it out. You can go Google it there. Feedback about the Barnes and Noble thing, little birdies or birdies adjacent, little birdies that okay. know little birdies. Um people who know Barnes and Noble booksellers. I'm not sure uh, there's a lot of new information here, I guess confirming what we've heard. James Daunt gave an interview, Jen Northington wrote a piece for us. We'll link to the show that as well. Um, That's it made some related but different points than we did. I don't think I've heard in the last anything in the last week that knocks me off my very short soapbox of I'm not sure there's much here. It feels worse than maybe it is. And Barnes and Noble is in the business of selling more books. And if they think this is going to sell them more books, great. But what do they care about the piece where? to get out and support books that aren't going to have an audience right away? Where are they going to try to make a difference rather than just being a receiver of -hmm. established interest? And I think that's kind of where we ended up last time, right?
1: Yeah, I think that is. That's my biggest question is, are they, and I guess, are they even interested in trying to make a difference or just have good success selling the books that are already proven to be sellers? Mm -hmm. Uh, There was good coverage of this in Publishers Lunch this week, including um, what I think... I didn't articulate. I couldn't articulate it last week, but I was feeling like this is a conversation between Barnes and Noble and publishing, and we were only hearing the criticism of Barnes and Noble last week. But one thing that has come out in the time since then, and through James Don's interview, is that Barnes and Noble has been communicating to publishers information about particular types of titles that are not selling well. Um, And this week, most of that was about middle grade hardcovers are really not selling well, along with some YA and adult hardcover. That aren't selling well. Barnes & Noble was returning up to 80% of books in those formats of middle grade hardcover and, wild. and, and adult hardcover. That is so wild. As we've covered on this show ad nauseum, being able to return stock that you don't sell to the publisher <laughs> is a an interesting idiosyncrasy of mm-hmm. the publishing and book selling retail business. And Barnes & Noble has been telling publishers we cannot sell these. Consumers don't want them. And I get kind of passively, maybe even directly, I'm not sure, recommending that publishers consider exploring more middle grade and paperback, more adult in trade paperback formats. Those are at price points that people are much friendlier to right now. And that publishing has been slow to receive or act upon that feedback and it was helpful to me to hear that it felt like oh right this is an ecosystem we're talking about we're Mm -hmm. just not talking about Barnes and Noble being a big bad they're reacting to forces coming from their consumers publishing is receiving this feedback from Barnes and Noble obviously wants their books to sell Um, and I know it's much more complicated I'm sure there are many reasons why publishing has not acted on this yet and maybe they're making changes right now maybe in a season or two we when books you know, ha- have time, have lead time to be planned. Maybe we'll see a shift in this direction. But it, I found it really helpful at, to hear that piece of it. Like, hey, this isn't just us. We have said this right. to publishers. And it's my job as James Dont, the CEO of Barnes & Noble, to make sure that Barnes & Noble can sell what we want to sell. And they're aiming to get down to less than 15% of titles returned which like you got to make big changes if you're trying to go from 80 to 15. Um, he did say we're selling more books than we've sold before but a fewer titles so more copies of fewer titles also seems to translate to what we have seen just in bestsellers in the last that contraction in the market over the last really half a decade
0: yeah it's true and interestingly it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the big bad of market consolidation on publishing right this is a this is a TikTok, social media, bookstagram phenomenon where the algorithm rewards more and more discussion of things people already know. And it has a snowball effect that's really hard to break. And I don't know what can be done about it. I don't know what marketing dollars in the world, right? I, historically, books by marginalized authors haven't gotten the same marketing dollars. Well, even at parody now, you're, the hurricane comes. and It doesn't matter how much wood you've nailed your windows on at this point like the hurricane is beyond anyone's mm-hmm. control right now and it's beyond barnes and nobles control it's beyond amazon's control it's beyond really anybody the only person that maybe could do something is i guess bite dance the tiktok parent company and, and do right. something else I, I don't even know at this point but the only category that's up year over year is trade paperback and adult fiction everything else is down yep. and that tells you something and i think you're right that these kinds of things takes longer like um, there's an author that my son really likes, and I, I've really come to like, because of reading with him, Kelly Yang's Front Desk series. The fourth book in her series is coming out in the fall. It's a hardcover, and apparently it's not going to be star- stocked in Barnes & Noble. Okay, f- fine. Whatever, I'm not really sure. It's you know the fourth book. It's not sold the first three. I don't know what to say about Barnes & Noble, except I'll say this, is even if Barnes & Noble would stock it as a paperback What's the royalty agreement? What's the publishing Mm -hmm. contract? It kind of reminds me of this stuff about um, Christopher Nolan having essentially veto power or not veto power to have Tenet played in the movie theaters rather than direct to HBO. Do you remember that? One of the big COVID movie stories. Mm -hmm. That was a contractual obligation, it sounds like. In other places, they had more leeway. Um, Denis Villeneuve, I guess, either didn't have the power or assented to having Dune be a pretty close to or if not day and date for Dune. But what I'm saying is those contracts were written and either you got to rewrite the contract people are loath to do, especially when it comes to the price of the book, because as you know, people know, if you've been listening or you know this, a lot of authors or a lot of their deals is their royalties are a percentage of the cover sale, cover price. And if you're going from a $17.99 YA or middle grade hardback to $11.99, the same number of books sold is going to be less money for you. Now, does that mean you're going to be stocked? I don't even know that would guarantee you to be stocked, but... I'm just kind of highlighting the thing you were saying before of that what that's what that's what the nature of this complexity could look like. We don't know if that's any of it all of that could be in play though, right Rebecca I mean any of that yeah. is at t- at I stake here
1: all of that could be in play and it's an algebra equation to be done for yeah. authors and agents I think of all right, do we want to insist still on coming out in hardcover knowing that we'll sell a lower volume but at a higher price point or At what point uh, in like how much more volume would we need to do in paperback sales to hit that same? And do we think that we could get there or is it even more likely to get there because the price point is more appealing? You know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about how we've been saying if Barnes & Noble wants to make a move or wants to help people discover titles, I would be really curious to see market research about bookstore shoppers like we we have the pew center research about how many books per year a heavy reader reads and that's you know 10 Mm -hmm. to 12 of those books if they acquire them from a bricks and mortar bookstore what percentage of the time are they going to the store already knowing what they want on those trips, do they pick up anything else that they weren't intending to get that they just discovered there? And on the other side of it, like, how often are bricks-and-mortar bookstore shoppers going into bookstores without any mission in mind? Because it could be you know, – I'm trying to think about analogies in other industries, like – I go to the grocery store with a grocery list, you know, and sometimes it's like, oh, I also want Oreos. I happen to I run across them and I also want my Oreos. But most of the time, at least in my personal example, grocery shopping is like pretty targeted and I learn about new products through advertising. Mm. And I'm wondering if social media and really the rise of recommendation media is pushing the publishing industry and pushing book discoverability further in that direction of it's just possible that discovery is shifting in a way that people are finding out about the books that they want to read from places like TikTok or Goodreads or Instagram or some influencer that they follow or, you know, Oprah and Reese, and that the bookstore is is like the grocery store now. It's just the place you go to get the milk, not to learn that milk exists. Um, I don't know that that's happening. It feels to me like there's a shift occurring. And part of Barnes & Noble's existential questioning might be around Is discoverability a thing we're trying to accomplish? And if so, how do we do it? If not, if you just need to be the place that has the stuff most people are likely to look for, that's a more straightforward directive. And then it it really Hmm. puts all the work on publishers to figure out how to advertise their titles effectively to get them out to readers rather than relying on this passive discoverability that has been that's the thing publishers have been obsessed with for as long as I've been in books and I'm sure for decades prior of how do we get people to find out about our titles but when I take myself out of books and I think about other kinds of shopping a lot of it is targeted what we do and we discover those items through you know technology rather than going to the store and discovering it there and I just wonder if we're in a one of those shifting points here where Barnes and Noble might be totally right to be like you know what the kids are coming in for tiktok books their parents are coming in for the reese's book club books they're not picking up other stuff discovery it's less about discovery now perhaps and i would love to like see some numbers on that and hear some folks closer to the metal of it really speak to that i'd be really curious
0: it almost have to be. Like, I don't know the grocery store analogy well enough for how grocery stores work. Um, I, I think the the difference or a similarity was there's a competition for shelf space. Like, this is the thing I yeah. know a little bit about with right. grocery stores. Is like, one of the reasons there's 15 kinds of Pop-Tarts is that Pop-Tarts wants all that shelf space. You're not going to give it all to the classic strawberry unfrosted shouts to the best one.
1: Unfrosted? Um, oh, Jeff.
0: Look, look. It's, <laughs> anyway. It's... it's, it's, it's it's what a person, it's what a man of leisure would eat. <laughs> That's what I'm saying.
1: A man of leisure would have frosting with sprinkles. No, it sprinkles. doesn't need frosting. doesn't need oh.
0: frosting. You're at leisure. You don't need to get your cheap thrills <sighs> mm. from the frosting at the top. I'm, You're there for sad. the thing. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know that Keebler Double Stuff Oreo Pop Tarts are going to sell a bunch more units, but what it does it take up shelf space that a competitor can't have? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you go to Crest, Colgate, Doritos. You're like you've probably seen this. The fragmentation, like the number of Reese's peanut butter varieties, there yeah. are the potato chip ones are bad, the pretzel ones are good. That's a free one for you out there. Um, it's this is also similar to the thing happening there. Is there's competition for the for the shelf space? It sounds to me like one thing people are implicitly or explicitly acknowledging is that just having your book on the shelf was an important advertising play, an important publicity play, and Barnes and Noble was providing that for essentially free. Remember that story we talked about mm-hmm. where independent bookstores were saying, maybe we should charge publishers like 10 cents a copy per week just to carry it mm-hmm. on our shelves because it's a discoverability place. Like they would buy something else. Well, it's not that they're only there for that unless we know what the books are. Yeah. Having them on the shelf provides some sort of discoverability thing. But is that Barnes & Noble's responsibility? I guess right. that's what people were saying. is They have some responsibility to do that. I'm just not sure to what extent, A, that's true, that it worked and B so people are buying what they didn't want. Is that kind of the object they were going to buy something else or they're buying additional to the Colleen Hoover or the other book they're going to buy? I'm just not sure. Yeah.
1: I think that's where, that's what feels like the black box of this to me. Like I, I think you're right that the idea of if I get my book on the shelf that's taking up a spot that someone else can't take and and it thinks of book purchasing as zero sum in that way like mm-hmm. shelf space is absolutely zero sum and um, there's only so much of it to go around but i think i feel and we've been doing this a long time i'm not convinced that just having your book on the shelf in the barnes and noble right now in 2022 active, actually is A marketing or a discoverability play because that means that someone has to walk through the doors of that bookstore ready to browse and pick up something that they haven't heard of before and and if if the books were
0: selling barnes noble keep them there i guess you almost the the point is proven by 80 percent returns of these
1: right i think a lot of it is about author feelings and i understand that i do too i think we also could benefit from resetting and realigning some expectations and redefining what that success looks like, redefining what your launch day should look like inside the reality that we're in right now. Like I get it that if you're an author, you want to go to the bookstore down the street on the yep. Tuesday that your book comes out and see it on the shelf and that it would be hard if you went there and it wasn't there. But it's hard because you've been taught to expect that that's the thing that will happen. And if we have a conversation about how many books come out, in a given week, the limitations of shelf space and what Barnes and Noble's duties are—you know—to at the baseline to its shareholders mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than to well, the to private equity the firm publishers. that bought it out
0: that's requiring right. it to stay in business, right? Yeah.
1: Right. Then, then I think that's where I, I would like this as a moment of evolution. I think for the industry because there are a lot of things that we place value on that are primarily about like the feelings of stuff. When feelings are important, like, don't get me wrong. You've listened to this show for a while. I do feelings. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this is a place where, like, maybe agents and publishers can come into some conversation and say, like, your launch day is about X, Y, Z. Here's what we're aiming for. Maybe it's about getting, maybe we shift from, like, you're going to walk into Barnes & Noble in your town, you're going to see your book on the shelf, to, like, We hope that within two weeks of your book coming out, we can see people posting about it on Instagram or it's going to be on TikTok. Like that's the place success is happening right now. This is like, focus your energy on getting to the place where the people are discovering the books rather than on the lottery ticket. Like this is probably also why it's so appealing to people is that it is a lottery ticket. It is a slot machine of like, well, but if it's there, someone could find it. And that Mm -hmm. could feels really exciting and like ripe with possibility, but the the real likelihood that your book just sitting there passively is going to sell itself to someone who walks through the doors not looking for it, I think is relatively low, given what we're seeing about the books that are selling and how people are finding out about them.
0: Has there, I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't even know how you would do this. But like, has any book taken off or done outsized expectation by just being on the shelf? Like normally you need some other thing to go on to. I mean, there's mm-hmm. definitely word of mouth hits but I don't think word of mouth often starts with just something being on the shelf. Well, like, I'm trying to think right. of like the biggest like <sighs> surprise indie darlings, like Water for Elephants, that's the one I always come back to. That was indie booksellers hand-selling that, mm-hmm. right? Has Bards & Noble ever made a book? What does that even look like? I think it's an interesting question. I, I, I think I, do, I want to acknowledge, but also contextualize like you do, my open-mindedness, If there could be a study out there that says, you know what, for X part of the market, just being on the shelf at Barnes & Noble really matters. I'm willing to believe that, I just don't sure. know. Sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We, we just don't know. Yeah,
1: I would I would love to see that.
0: And frankly, that feels much more real and important and visceral than just seeing the Amazon landing page for your book. Because it looks like mm-hmm. every other one out there. But that's way, it's like not even, we know like 60% of trade is going through Amazon. Like in the other, I mean, who knows, it's Target and Costco and other places. And there's that Barnes and Noble has it, Barnes and Noble has come to have almost a library like place in our understanding of the world of books and reading. Cause ain't no one saying this about Target, ain't no right. one saying this about Costco, ain't no one saying about about the Raven, Rebecca, the bookstore of the year. Yeah. That Barnes and Noble has this unique position in the world of books and reading, and I, it's maybe it's fair, maybe it's not. I'm just I'm just noticing this now for the first time. Is that a lot of other places that buy books, sell books, and maybe that sell a whole bunch more books there's something that's come to be that this is a thing where there's almost an ethical obligation or that Barnes Noble has to stock stuff that we don't ask of the Strand or Powell's or even the bigger Indies.
1: That really gets to what I'm thinking and feeling here, which is like, there is the feeling that this is a thing. And I would like us to step back and ask, is it really a thing and does it, and if it is, does it continue to need to be a thing? Because we've in 15 years of doing this, I've been in lots of meetings with publishers who have said things like, we don't have a budget to market this book, but we're really hoping for word of mouth. Yeah. I have never, never sat in a meeting with someone who was like, we don't have a budget for this, but we're just hoping people find it on shelves. <laughs> like there's just, just I, I don't think that there is a shared sense in the world of publishing that just having a book out somewhere gives it a a decent shot at success like granted it's got to be on a shelf for someone to find it but if customers are walking into bookstores without the intention or the openness to stumble on things it doesn't really matter that the book is on the shelf and we just we're just going to publish it and make it available those books don't succeed winning the lottery of Word of mouth is a lottery win. The marketing yeah. budget is the way <laughs> like right almost and, almost.
0: yeah and 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 to take up three and a half inches at eighty four barnes adobles feels like a lottery ticket, but maybe it's actually not. Kind yeah, of we're think, saying like, maybe that's not if, actually yeah, viable lottery ticket
1: if you're an author with a book like out with your agent now, I would think, and i'd love to hear from agents about this, but I would yes. think that the the way to go would be harder negotiations with the publisher about how your book is going to be marketed and that there will be a dedicated marketing budget. Like I understand that they might not allocate the like specific dollar amount for the marketing budget upfront at the time that they're making the book deal and marketing budgets move around. And we've heard all about this the last couple of weeks (laughs) in the big PRH, Simon and Schuster trial. But I would think that if there's anything you can negotiate about or spend your effort on as an author who's getting a deal with a publisher, it would be the marketing efforts and the marketing budget rather than, are you gonna make sure my book is on the shelves in Barnes and Noble?
0: Yeah, which feels like marketing theater maybe at this point, like that's yeah, like- marketing it looks, theater, yes, yeah. Is something like that. So again, if, if you guys out there, um, folks out there see other articles that has more data, more case studies, we'd love to see it. Um, we've got questions too and I think we we believe many different stories. I do think there's a world in which some categories have a different relationship to shelf space.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of this I would is for data. children's.
0: for children's and middle grade. I think it's possible in this regard, especially you know, there's all but just about marketing to kids, which is a thing, right? We know this from running <laughs> um, uh, advertising business and books, but also they're not online. They can't buy them. They can't buy the book themselves typically with a credit card on Amazon or somewhere else. Also, you go in with your folks or an aunt or uncle or a friend. There, I think there may be more discovery happening there than, say, I'm just nonfiction. I'm just picking yeah, something at I would, random. I think that's possible, though I'm not saying it's – it seems more possible there because the nature of discovery and yes. purchasing is just different. In that and regard.
1: parents want to flip through and see if the book does yeah. the things that they're wanting a book to do. I think it's possible – I would really believe this for cookbooks – you know, you oh. want to check out the recipes. Yeah. Are And I know like I think more people are not are, are just not buying cookbooks <laughs> anymore because we have the Internet. But like I'm a dedicated mm. cookbook fan. I do want to hold the cookbook in my hands and like see the recipes and are is this the way I like to cook? Are these ingredients? Is this what I'm down for? Maybe. And those, you know, kind of fancy like coffee table books perhaps need that that option to like pick them up and have a tactile experience in order to discover them. I, I would think that's, or I'd be really, I'd really believe it. I'd be open to hearing more yeah. about that. But in terms of like, I don't know, adult trade paperback fiction, discoverability for that's happening on the internet.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it does seem like it, you know, it's, it's funny. One of the side effects of my front year of front 2022 mm. is I've been going into bookstores as I yeah. always do, even big ones. And sometimes they don't have the book I'm looking for.
1: Mm-hmm. They just don't. Yeah, I and was in a... It's just oh, a thing.
0: That, 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 that's the end of my story. That's but it. It was, it was a <laughs> classic anecdote for you there.
1: Yeah, I was uh, up in Vermont this past week visiting a friend, and I got to go to Northshire Bookstore, which is in Manchester. And it is one of the rare exceptions to my typical, like, well, that's a bookstore response when I'm, <laughs> when I'm traveling. It's, it's really lovely. It has a unique vibe, Jeff. It has a cafe and dogs. And...
0: They don't care about I had the same.
1: I know I had the same. I was looking around at like the new and paperback shelves, the new and hardcover shelves. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. So I was doing the rare, like very intentional, Mm -hmm. just discover some stuff. Um, But there were so many like also probably because I have our fall draft in my head and I had been prepping for that on the flight of like I was looking for. Are, the, are some of the things that we drafted this summer on a lot of the displays. Where are they? And some were, some weren't. They're, they're doing a lot of, you know, hand selling kinds of things. But I think the feelings value of that bookstore discoverability has probably at this point vastly outpaced the like actual purchasing value of it for most formats or most you know genres of books. And it'll be interesting to see you know, where else this goes.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's do another sponsor break and come back and talk about um, how there's no more challenges to books. Everything's fine. (laughs) Everything is going well in a stunning reversal. We're all cool with um, being inclusive with children's books. That's that's after the break.
2: Great. I look forward to it. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang.
0: All right. You put these on the agenda. You deal with them.
1: (laughs) Okay. We can do... We're going to deal with them quickly. Okay. Um, I do just want to first shout out our colleague, Kelly Jensen, who's been doing really incredible work reporting on all of these attempts at book banning and really not just attempts at book banning, but the ongoing movement of parents... On the conservative right to have more say over their children's education and really other people's children's mm-hmm. education, um, Kelly gave a great interview on PBS NewsHour earlier this week, where you can see her speak to that. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, she also covered was this a Kelly piece? Uh, no, this was. A broader Bookwright community piece um, is continuing to cover what's going on with Texas school district curricula. Um, we've seen all kinds of interesting things happening in Texas. And this week, the Grapevine Colleyville Independent School District voted on a new set of guidelines, um, not specifically about books, but these include um, prohibitions against critical race theory, as well as chosen pronouns and promotion of the ideas of gender fluidity. Um, it's been dubbed the Don't Say Trans bill, um, but it, it really prevents educators from sharing any theory, or this is direct language from the bill, sharing any theory or ideology that espouses the view that biological sex is a social construct that espouses the view that it's possible for a person to be any gender or none that is non-binary, based solely on that person's feelings or preferences. Um, That's really condescending language. Not surprising, I suppose, here. Um, Or or that espouses the view that an individual's biological sex can be changed to, quote, match a self-believed gender that is different from the person's biological sex. So this really is an attempt to broadly prevent any conversation about the idea that gender could be anything other than this male-female binary that um, many of us have been raised to believe in. Um, It's also not going to um, promote, require, or encourage educators are not allowed to promote, require, or encourage the use of pronouns that don't match the biological sex of the person that's listed on their birth certificate. So this also means not just for kids, but that teachers who are trans or non-binary will be forced to misgender themselves uh, if they wish to keep their jobs in this school district. Um, Increasing efforts here. I think it's important to talk about these as uh, around language, Yes. even though we're here a book site, because these things are related. Uh, you made a really strong point last week about, you know, that these books are threatening to people because the ideas in them are threatening. And this is an extension of that, this language is threatening to people who want to enforce these strict binaries um at, because they know they, they, they know. know it's a construct if you were so sure that this was the way it is and was unshakable this other people out there with other ideas would not be so terribly threatening, but they are attempting to control the introduction of these ideas by controlling the language that that educators and the teachers can use and it's it, it, they're making progress um so there's not much, you know, we're we're running out of like summary phrases to say <laughs> about, yeah, right. about these pieces. It's upsetting every time. Um, there are actions that folks can take if you are in this school district or around it. Be looking out for this stuff in your own school districts. Um, this is something to pay attention to. I have to frequently remind myself, even as a person who doesn't have kids in school, I, I should just care about what is happening in the school districts where my vote matters um, and where I might have you know one citizen's worth of influence. But This is the creep of authoritarianism and the creep of trying to have this kind of social control. We see it with books. We're seeing it with language. There will be more attempts at other things. Um, And y'all have expressed as listeners that you wanted to know about what's happening. So here we are reporting it. Never happy to have it, though.
0: Last week, I was saying that one possible, I don't know, one possible, not a strategy necessarily, but one reality of trying to ban individual books was the whack-a-mole element is that publishing Mm -hmm. is publishing more and more of these. There's a demand for them. They're selling very well. I almost put it in the show this week about um, the real strong sales of queer YA over the last couple of years, especially. Oh yeah. Um, and some of it is interest. Some of it is normalization. Some of it is authors feeling comfortable. And some of it is publishers knowing that they're going to sell and getting behind it. And it's becomes it's become a virtuous circle here. And just keep the books coming and make them ban each individual book this is this is rather than whacking the mole this is laying down DDT in the farm Mm -hmm. this is what this is this is we don't have to look at the individual book we can we're going to have this this blanket um, prohibition this this blanket erasure Uh, and I hope this is a catch 451 series where people are going to have to challenge the books and say transgender transgender he he they Mm -hmm. they them Mm -hmm. she her over and over again Um, and I hope the ACLU I don't know where they could be on this. We said this last time. Um, this would be a good place because this is not about individual books. This is now about the words you can say, the ideas you can present. And it's a precursor to kind of a Scopes Monkey Trial moment, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's for those of you who don't know, you probably do, about presenting evolution as something that could be talked about. And it's going to take probably a big lawsuit. And unfortunately, the courts being what they are, it could lose. I, it seems like a lot of this should be Fourth Amendment stuff. I, I don't really mm-hmm. know, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, but unfortunately, this is going to need to be litigated. Yeah. Um, and it's going to need an advocate with b- big pockets because these are happening all over the place. And I'm really sad to see this. Um, there's, you know, the only person this hurting is some kid that feels alone um, and misunderstood and like the only one out there. And this only makes it worse. This doesn't help anybody. This doesn't help anybody. This protects no one from anything. Um, so I'm really sad to hear this. And I don't know. I, I say this over again. I am surprised to see. Um, I'm still surprised to have an emotional reaction. But something mm. about banding a word, I guess, really yeah. got me too. Because that's like, I don't know. M- maybe I was in denial. Maybe maybe an individual book I can make an excuse for. or was under the cover of Not Appropriate for Children. And there's some appropriate for children stuff I'm sympathetic to. It was brought brought home to me again when people sent—actually, I should say thank you. From last week, people sent recommendations for for Ames and 11-year-old, you know, kind of nerdy readings. And the one that I hadn't thought of that I did that I will probably pass along sooner rather than later is the Discworld series. I'm not much of a Mm. Discworld person myself, more that I just kind of missed it. Um, But it made me think of, like, you know, there's a bunch of books. I was like, God, there's kids. There's kids out there that need this stuff. Um, and then I also see, frankly, in our own my own school district, the kids' own school district, the inclusion of pronouns, the inclusion of, of queer student alliances and highlighting and spotlighting and encouraging. And it only makes these kids' lives better. It, it really mm-hmm. only does. I mean, they talked to my parents about how the biggest difference I see in my kids' education versus theirs is this. Th- this is the single. B- A lot of the other stuff is familiar to me. Um, they do some stuff about how you group numbers differently and doing math in your head that actually feels more like how I would do it. Um, but it's just remarkable to see um, what can be possible that people can open their minds and open their hearts to the variety of actual experiences people have. Because here's the thing. The language here, this isn't going to change anybody's experience no. of their lives. Let, let's be clear about that. It ain't going to change anyone from, you know what, you're right. I don't actually think I'm trans. Everything's fine. I will go put on the clothes you want me to wear. and you... It's going to be sublimated like it has been for for, for, for millennia. Um, you're not protecting anything you're making things worse you're driving people away from your communities um, and their their family systems and their feelings of love and support and inclusion that's that's all that's happening here and i I can't stress that enough um at least that's what i believe Mm -hmm. okay um what else you want to do let's do a sponsor break and then give that its own whatever we can we can put a we can give it its own space to breathe for a second with a sponsor Let's talk book clubs. All right. Um, Amazon is now sponsoring the TikTok book club. What does this mean, sponsoring the TikTok book club? I, I couldn't figure this out. I are couldn't they giving figure. So, yeah, we, I couldn't figure out. Follow the I'm money gonna... to follow the president. Yeah. We should do this every time. We should have a, <laughs> maybe I need a soundboard.
1: Follow the money.
0: Where's the Who's giving money to whom and what are they giving? I don't I understand. I mean,
1: yeah, I I couldn't figure out what it means from this Mashable piece uh, that we're that we're linking to here uh, by Mira Navlaka. I'm, I like you. I think if we follow the money here, Amazon is paying TikTok for something. Uh, for something. Their Amazon's <laughs> involvement comes in the form of their there's free reading themed emojis on TikTok, that you can get if you search for amazon books in their stickers they can be placed the stickers can be placed on book talk themed videos there are also in-app hubs now that say presented by amazon books underneath this sounds pretty similar to the barnes and noble book talk yeah hub that we talked everyone about a couple wants of a piece Rebecca
0: Everybody yeah. trying to get a piece
1: so i mean i guess to flip it around then if we had gotten these stories in the reverse order, if first we had had Amazon sponsoring a thing and then Barnes & Noble had also gotten you know, a sponsored thing on book talk, we'd be like, this is great because at least someone is competing with Amazon. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, maybe the interesting way to think about this story is that this was a place in social media, recommendation media, um, advertising of books where Amazon was not the first mover and Barnes & Noble actually got to it first.
0: Someone at Amazon Books was like, who was asleep at the wheel and let Barnes and Noble get on the book talk hub.
1: Yeah. And like I use the Amazon homepage for research quite a bit. And I don't recall seeing a like hot on book talk kind of thing. Like not, Uh, I haven't, I haven't seen the virtual equivalent of the tables that Barnes and Noble has advertising the big book talk titles. Um, So that's interesting because James Don has been talking about book talk and the kids coming in at three 30 for like nine months now.
0: Yep, so, that's right.
1: Just, I don't well, have much else to say about it. Just here's this is a thing. TikTok remains ascendant, and the retailers want in.
0: I mean, yeah, it's fascinating. I I forgot to put the link in. I'm sorry, Rebecca. Walmart also starting a book club, five titles mm. a year, and their first one is Ali Hazelwood's new book. And her book, Love Hypothesis, is a huge TikTok hit as well. Oh, so interesting. Okay. Somehow these big retailers are trying to figure out a way. To be the casino you come into. I don't. I'm, I'm lost. My metaphor here. I'm just like, hey, we also sell this book. Five titles a year. I guess it'll be spotlighted at the end cap. Walmart's book club pick. Does it do anything for them? I, I'm not really sure. Are people picking up this book rather than that book because it has the Walmart sticker on it? I, I guess we'll
1: see. I mean, maybe it's in the Walmart or even like a Target example. Maybe the way it works is more like you're already in Walmart and you saw that book on TikTok and intended to buy it. And it's like, well, I'm here, yeah. so I might as well get it rather than making another separate purchase online later. I don't know. Be interesting you know. to follow those Walmart ones and see like, are they all TikTok titles? <laughs> is that is that the way they're going? I
0: don't know. I mean, again, if you're aggressing to the mean, maybe it should be, the, but then mm-hmm. why... Why put a sticker on it? Yeah. What What is the value out of the sticker right. is a little less clear to me.
1: Oh, while we're talking about regressing to the bean, can we talk about the book covers we exchange texts about this oh, weekend? Oh, yeah. Do I, I
0: don't have my phone. Do you have, the, do you have it in front
1: of you? Oh, yeah. Let me find it. You want to vamp for a this, second? This is
0: Well, so um, I, I think I texted you first about yes. this book called What the Fireflies Knew. Yes. Right? And then, yeah, um, there's...
1: What the Fireflies Knew, and then another book called A Hundred Crickets Singing. Yes. And the text was, is this trying to ride the crawdad coattails? Yes. Well, both of them are
0: kind of, okay, then you had, then you
1: had Yeah, and both of them do. Like, What the Fireflies Knew is like a dusky orange cover, and obviously has fireflies. And then A Hundred Crickets Singing has a, a girl or woman with her back turned, and that's crickets like crickets and fireflies and crawdads not exactly the same thing but like not wrong and then i was telling you that i saw first that crawdads is in mass market paperback i saw it in the hudson bookstore so that's a thing also atomic habits still in hardcover that thing is cooking but back to this i've seen the color palette of the crawdads book cover seems to be coming up because the ones you sent me were like looked thematically similar to crawdads mm-hmm. and
0: well the, the titles the titles came yeah. out of like an ai title yes. generator
1: <laughs> right and then the two that i sent you back were the paper palace by miranda cowley heller and fellowship point by alice Elliot dark and i don't know anything about the content mm. of those but the color palette and design of those covers look pretty similar to crawdads like both of them one is one is a marsh and one is looking out over, I think, a lake, um, look, a body of water. Also, those dusky like oranges and lavenders yeah. and stuff. I was like, "This is th- this it's feels like a thing." dusk or
0: dawn on right? a coastal plain.
1: Yeah. What? Oh, and then you saw the Marsh Queen. And then that, the... that
0: was the one that sealed it. That's coming out in the fall. <laughs> so I did a screen grab. I was like, okay, because I think I had joked about like you know, Gone Girl had spawned a bunch of imitators, mm-hmm. and even the the Fifty Shades and Twilights of the world had. And we hadn't really seen this. And these books are out. And I guess it's about right. It's a kind of a couple years after it, people are acquiring yeah. these. And all the blurbs, I'm not seeing any direct for fans of Where the Crawdads, weirdly. I, oh. And again, I didn't spend a lot of time with it. Two of them I picked up as library books. I didn't check them out, so I took a picture on when I was scanning out. Um, and then the Marsh Queen I saw in the catalog. But I didn't see... I, I don't know. What the Fair... <laughs> where the Fireflies knew? And what was the <laughs> Crickets book? I don't have my phone on me. What's the Crickets book? Oh,
1: one? Oh, I just put it down. A um, Hundred anyway. Crickets Singing. Yeah. It, you got crickets s- and singing.
0: Swamp Swamp Deller's plus verb is, <laughs> I mean, what else? I mean, come on. And, and the Marsh Queen, that could be an alternate title for. Um, yeah. I'd be fat. Did they acquire them for this reason? Do they really think someone who's like Crada's? I think that's the funny thing about a phenomenon like this is that it feels like, you know, read-alike should work. But it's so out of scale. It's such an outlier (laughs) that there's no even orthogonal territory. Like, no one's out there like, I want another book like Crawdads. They're not looking for where the crickets mate or, you know, where slugs (laughs) dwell. They're not looking for it. They just aren't.
1: Where the slugs dwell, coming to a library near you. (laughs) On that note.
0: Yeah. All right. You want to do Faultless Foyer, you got anything for me?
1: Yeah. Um, I just completely lost track of the title. No, I read Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garris. Ah, oh, last what did week. you think? It was super fun. Yeah. It was okay. super fun. You had told me it was like I was like plane read and you had said solid pick for the plane. I wholeheartedly plus, agree. Yeah. B plus solid. Really fun read. I liked, of course, a feminist character angle. The dog gets a perspective, which often is really cheesy, but I was on board with the way that she did it. I thought it was really fun. Um, yeah. I enjoyed that. And then on my wander around Northshire bookstore, where I was trying to do discoverability, um, I learned the first couple times I went there, they have a great food and cooking section. So it's become mm. like the thing I do when I visit this friend is go to Northshire and I buy some food memoirs. Um, Because I think the last several times I've been there, I've picked up something that I hadn't heard of before. So I picked up um, Michael W. Twitty has a new Uh, memoir out um, called Kosher Soul, I believe. Uh, And then I picked up California Soul by Keith Corbin, who... Grew up in the Watts neighborhood in L.A. Um, he was, he's like right in our age group, um, early 40s, I think now, and had a life, a, a young life sort of defined by being a, a member of a gang and growing up in a pretty hard neighborhood, spent time in prison, and now is a chef at one of California's most celebrated restaurants. And so it's, going, it's a different kind of story into um, the chef memoir. And it looked really good. I started it on the flight home, and I've been really enjoying that.
0: Cool. I've done enough front list reading now that I can theme my recs. I, I can save them and kind of do some pairs. I've got an embarrassment of pitches here. Um, the fir- I'm doing uh, sk- horror novels today. Well, okay. kind of. One's a ghost story and one's more of a horror novel. I thought I thought the second one would be more of a ghost story than a horror, but it is what it is. So it's like how I got into Stranger Things. I didn't think it was going to be quite that gory. Oh, yeah. But the first one um, is... Um, Hidden Pictures by Jason Rakuliak, I believe is how you say the last name. And it's a ghost story. And I really like it. So it's set in New England-ish somewhere. And this young woman who is coming off uh, rehab, coming out of rehab, trying to get her life restarted, becomes a nanny for a well-to-do family. And she lives out in the cottage on the edge of the woods. And you maybe see where this is going. Mm -hmm. And the child of this family starts drawing pictures that are not something that you would think a five-year-old should draw. And it's very, it's the kind of ghost story I like. There's not a lot of horror. It's not gory. There is someone that dies. There is a murder. But it's not Silence of the Lambs, if you know what I'm saying. It's not real gross-out, terrifying stuff. It's very well done. It's very lean. I blew through it. I thought it was really good. Keep that in your back pocket if you kind of like to do seasonal reading mm. um, and you'd like something a little spooky but not, I don't know, terrifying. Unlike, say, The Hacienda by Isabel Canas, (laughs) which um, is really cool. The the comps were Rebecca. Okay, I should have known what I was getting to. It's been a little time. Mm. So this is set soon after the Mexican Revolution, a couple years after on a hacienda, which is essentially a plantation as far as I understand it. Um, And the main character, her own situation is not great, and she marries a wealthy landowner, comes to the hacienda to become the lady of the house, And let's just say the past lady of the house hasn't uh, fully uh, evacuated yet, if you hear what I'm saying, mm -hmm. and sticks around in um, various corporeal forms. And there's a lot more blood and vomiting. It seems to go hand in hand. They get a lot of blood, then a lot of vomiting happens. But very, very entrancing. A lot lot of scene, kind of the house and the setting and the spookiness and good characters a lot of history doesn't know there's some steam where she enlists the help of the local hot priest um to come in and help her get some exorcism going um (laughs) you know what i'm saying
1: (laughs) i i think i'm a little bit afraid to go there.
0: well that's you hear what i'm saying then you got it uh so there's a there's a love steaminess angle um really cool book it's a debut novel um, and it, it was on the list of I think Amazon's best books of the year, and I've been slowly making my way through the picks of like the big lists that I was interested mm. in. That was the one that I wouldn't have read myself normally, but I'm I'm really glad I did, even though it was scarier than I would have liked. That was a read it in the morning with the lights on book. I could do <laughs> hidden pictures at night. I didn't need to do the hacienda. Um, by myself when uh, my family's asleep and yeah. it's creaky and the slugs are dwelling outside of the marsh. I'm surprised
1: I'm to even hear you with like two or three horror recommendations. <sighs> well, together. it's, it's interesting. the go. I,
0: I think a ghost story, again, like I said, the other one, if I had known the scare quotient, I maybe would have shied away. But I try to read outside my comfort zone a little bit. Yeah. And this one, I, I'm ultimately glad that I did. So I, I'd recommend them both if you like that kind of thing. I think they were good. All right. So there we go. Let's end the show. Uh, fall draft. We're, I'm going to go eat something real quick. You will not hear this right away, my eating or the draft, but we were going to record it. Stick around for that. All the little birdie stuff we want to know, um, especially – I think we're re- we're really looking for some sort of market report on a mid-list novel, either middle grade, YA, romance, whatever, that not being shelved with Barnes & Noble would have mattered or how it would have mattered, what scale to care about. I think we're groping for that. We've done this long enough that – I think we want to see some evidence mm-hmm. rather than a logical claim because there's a lot of logical... We've done some of them ourselves here of trying to yeah. tell a story or make sort of bridge and logic, but without evidence that we can build off of, it's a little hard to know um, what to make of it. And I appreciate those of you who wrote in to say, yeah, this is a thing that's happening. Here's what's affecting it. Here's why I'm concerned. But in a lot of those concerns was also couched in... Or the, there, the ne- or the thing that was missing was, and here's an example of this book really people were picking up off the shelf. And this is a book that really would have been made or had a different trajectory um, than, than otherwise if it was not on the shelf. So, Rebecca, thank you. As always, you can find links to this episode, the, the stories we're talking about this episode and all episodes, backups of Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen, podcast at bookriot.com, and the Book Riot Patreon is patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. Any other URLs you want to throw out? Anything on the top of mind you want to?
1: No. I'm done.
0: Slugs.net, crickets.org,
1: crickets.org. I would like to see a title generator. Somebody make us one of those.
0: It would be preposition, swamp dweller, verb. Yes. Right. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: From the, from the mollusks. (laughs) Mollusks. Great. That sounds creepy. I don't like that either. Sleeping mollus, that's not good. You're at the sleeping with the fishes. All right, Rebecca, thank you as always.